I am Brother Cornell West, and this is Hip Hop Can Save America. Peace and love, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces. Just wanted to let you know that Hip Hop Can Save America is now available as a live stream show every Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. You can find it at hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Excerpts from that show will be played here on the audio feed, so you'll still get the good interviews that you've been used to. But check out the live stream and check out my free Substack newsletter at mannyfaces.substack.com. That's filled with all kinds of stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and generally hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. For everything hip-hop can save America, hiphopcansaveamerica.com. For everything Manny Faces, mannyfaces.com. And if you find value in this work, you can support it. We'd love to have you aboard as a supporter at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. Now let's go. The thing about hip-hop today is it's smart. It's insightful. The the way that they can communicate uh, a complex message in a very short space is is remarkable. And a lot of these kids, they're not going to be reading the New York Times. That's not how they're getting their information. So hip hop didn't invent anything, but hip hop reinvented everything. What's up, y'all? It's your man Manny Faces. That last quote, uh, the great Grandmaster Kaz from the Art of Rap documentary brought to life by Ice-T, really encapsulates a lot about hip-hop, music, and culture, and specifically about this show. Thanks for joining me again, y'all, on the live stream. This is Hip-Hop Can Save America with your man Manny Faces. Uh, We're doing live streams Monday through Thursday for the entire month of September. If you're just catching up now, there's a bunch to check out. So wherever you're watching me here, you can go back and flip through and binge watch Hip Hop Can Save America. Uh, you can also subscribe to this as a podcast. So if you haven't uh, done either of those things, please do. There's some good material and discussion and insight. And it has to do with hip hop reinventing everything. It has to do with hip hop being used in different ways, whether it's in education or health and wellness or science and technology, or politics and social justice, or the fine arts, or spirituality, all of these other aspects of humanity uh, where hip-hop is improving humanity. There's improvements and uplifting and increasing access and doing all the things that, that we want to see happen in our society, betterment of society. Uh, hip-hop has found ways to do that sort of thing. My job is to tell you about them. Again, we've had folks from the world of education, social justice. Yesterday was Lloyd Rose Benson, the executive director and CEO of Hip Hop Public Health, explaining how that organization has for 15 years now gone throughout the country and helped improve public health behavior, especially in underserved uh, communities that have had their backs turned. Obviously, the ones who are uh, disproportionately affected by things like pandemic and and climate change and uh, has gone through using the transformative power of hip hop to improve those lives and those livelihoods and those communities. So that's the kind of vibe I'm on. You can find more about whatever I do, wherever you find social media, Manny Faces or Manny Faces NY, doesn't matter. Just Google the thing you're looking for and me. Uh, But most important, follow this show on whatever platform you're viewing me now or hearing me. I appreciate you. Once again, available as a podcast, uh, wherever you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, just look for Hip Hop Can Save America. 
We are brought to you by a couple of great sponsor friends, Funkadelic Studios in New York City. If you're a musician or an artist in New York City, uh, you're itching to get back to the to, to the mix, to the recording and rehearsing, Funkadelic Studios, safe, UV radiated, taking care of all the things, socially distant, low capacity, all the things you need from your rehearsal recording space, Funkadelic Studios. And of course, the Newsbeat podcast, which we've featured on this podcast, is like a crossover episode, incorporating social justice journalism with hip hop sensibilities and music and original lyrics by independent artists it's like uh democracy now and black thought had a podcast baby uh it's super dope again please another thing for your ears that's uh impactful i'll take the numbers but i'm about impact so when we talk about the newsbeat podcast and social justice that's uh that mix so the reason why this show i think is so important i'm very happy and proud to be doing this work but others, I'm walking on, I'm standing on the shoulders of others, you know, walking in the paths that others had, have come before me. And uh, one of the ways, reasons we want to do this is because the hip hop narrative is often lost or missed or skewed or uh, misdelivered uh, or erased. Uh, as much of uh, certainly Af- African American history in the United States has, especially in entertainment, the sort of we've seen this, this game before where, uh, you know, black Americans make and create and innovate. White America kind of takes, gloms onto it, amplifies it, kind of takes it as their own. And then those stories are forgotten. So peace, Rob L. Uh, peace, peace, indeed. Uh, peace from the Zulu Nation. And um, rest in peace, Lord Yoda, who passed. Mad respect. The narratives are, are often lost in the past because information, right? Now we're in the information age and we have a better job. We can do a better job of telling the stories. A lot of hip hop elders and pioneers are just talking about Zulu Nation. They're people who are still alive. They're people who are still doing things and, and they can still talk and tell their stories. One of the ways that we love to talk about the intersection of hip hop and other industries, and the big payback is right. He has a great book that shows this sort of how, you know, took over the music industry and da da da. And it might even dabble into this. The fashion industry became so intertwined with hip hop, especially in the 90s multi-billion dollar you know connections again started by and innovated by you know the hip-hop folks the hip-hop generation uh, largely black and brown americans and and as you see by stories like dapper dan where dapper dan was doing all this innovation then he was copied then they we like it was found out and then now dapper dan's getting the love again that narrative was almost lost that narrative was almost buried and and the general public may not have ever found out that you know what gucci's doing today Models after what Dapper Dan was doing back in the days. It was, it's a whole thing. Uh, one great way to uh, witness all this is through the, it's currently on Netflix, the remix, Hip Hop and Fashion, is a documentary that's on Netflix right now uh, that goes into detail about you know, Misa Hilton, Dapper Dan, a few other designers. It kind of goes through the, the period of time where hip hop not only uh, influenced the fashion industry, but largely became the fashion industry, really took it over and, and made it something unprecedented in the industry. So it's a great uh, documentary. I happen to have an acquaintance who appeared on that documentary. Uh, her name is Elena Romero. She's a professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology, FIT. Uh, she's an author of the book Freestyling, How Hip Hop Changed the Fashion Industry. She's an acclaimed author and an expert in this field. And of course, then uh, being uh, talked to uh, on the documentary to go into this great history, this great detail about how the fashion industry, how hip hop wove its way, just like it did through everything else, every other aspect of society, wove its way into the fashion industry and, um, you know, left its uh, indelible mark forever. 
Uh, again, it's important that these narratives get told. I think the documentary did a great thing. Uh, and I wanted to talk to Elena about it in more detail. Again, this is my interview with the great Elena Romero about hip hop and the fashion industry. Check it out. Elena, thank you very much for coming and joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, we've known each other for quite some time, mostly online, a little bit offline. We've crossed paths. Uh, you do a lot of, you've done a lot of things that involve the intersection of hip hop in a lot of different areas, education, fashion, of course, something you're quite known for. Uh, and since this show is all about those intersections, it's a no brainer that we, uh, we get you on here and talk to you for a little bit. Uh, since we all wear many hats, we all do a lot of different things, myself included. Uh, you know how that goes. How do you kind of currently present yourself to the world, let everyone know who you are and kind of what you do? I think it depends on the platform and atmosphere and time of day, quite right. frankly. That's I do it. wear a lot of hats. A lot of hats. I am a uh, full-time professor now. I've kind of switched over from doing journalism full-time and I've moved into academia full-time. I'm an assistant professor in the Advertising Marketing Communications Department at FIT. Nice. So I have stayed still within that fashion realm. Uh, I am also a full-time second-year PhD student. So I have also decided that after teaching for over 18 years, I might as well really become really official in the academy. So I've decided to go through the rigorous training and I'm in my second year studying urban education at the CUNY Graduate Center. Mm. I am also a TV correspondent for a new lifestyle magazine show called Latinas on CUNY TV. So I talk to wonderful women and hear and share their stories of empowerment, of influence and inspiration. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm also a mom of three. Mm -hmm. So I've got my plate quite full. <laughs> I know that last part well. Yes. Uh, I don't know about being a PhD student. Uh, I went to college for about 20 minutes, but I know the last part well. That's all right. You went to school of hard knocks. Damn you right. earned your honorary degree. Damn right. <laughs> Uh, tell me about, uh, we go back a long ways. Again, you've been doing a lot of things in these intersectional areas uh, for a long time. We first crossed paths, I think, when you were uh, uh, orchestrating a conference series called Is Hip Hop History? Uh, uh, hip Hop Is History? Yeah. No, no, you got it right. Is it right? Okay. It was, is Hip Hop History? It was a right. play on, obviously, the term. Uh, it was several years after Nas had kind of made up the, uh, the, the song and, and, and brought up the concept of is hip hop dead? dead? We had also heard that in fashion some years at around the same time where it was it was said that urban fashion was dead around the same time of the music. So it was kind of playing, all right, history, is it over? But also history in terms of, you know, archiving and preserving, you know, the artifacts and right. the knowledge. And so it was a, a good play on words. We did that at the City College of New York for about five years. And it was a great idea between myself and my colleague, Mr. Warren Orange, who is a historian. Right. And we decided that we wanted to merge both the academics, the scholars, right, who really focus on theory, and then the people of the community, along with the OGs or the pioneers and bring them both together. Right. So where I had an academic scholar serve as a keynote speaker, I also had someone, you know, that had over 20 years experience. And those people, you know, varied. I had everyone from like Ralph McDaniels and Pete Rock and a number of other people, Vinny from Naughty by Nature. Everyone would have, um, every year, I just picked different keynote speakers. We had performances. So it wasn't just academic talk or speak, 
but really kind of trying to bring, bridge those two very different worlds together right. all because we all share the same love. We hear a lot of, I, I talk to a lot of academics or people that are working, you know, kind of uh, hip hop based education, again, trying to do that. And, you know, us who are kind of, I guess, not in the ivory tower, uh, we love when the practitioners and the people who've been, like you said, the school of hard knocks, the ones doing the work, the, right. the cultural participants are brought into the mix. And, and sometimes it doesn't happen as much as it needs to be. You were doing it quite some time ago, right out of the gate. But what I'll tell you is it was completely accidental. It mm. was not my intent. In fact, um, you know, when I was in college, my intent was to be uh, a television reporter, which happened literally uh, about a year ago. I got my break. And for that's that. something. It all comes life around. So <laughs> life doesn't go in a straight and narrow path. Right. All my friends at that time were talking <clears throat> 1990. Um, so we're talking about people who are, you know, start getting their early start in the music business. Also, all my friends were kind of shifting and more working in the entertainment side, the right. record label side, A&R. I wanted to go kind of the general mainstream. I was worried about being pigeonholed because I was Latina, because I wanted to do hip hop. So in a way, I kind of ran away right from the destiny part of it. Mm. And after, you know, doing it um, a number of ways, trying to break into the business, I ended up doing uh, TV spot sales, you know, for a little bit. I didn't get the journalism job right out of college. Okay. And then I pivoted and I started freelancing. Friends of mine started a magazine called Urban Latino Magazine. I started freelancing for them. And then I got my break as a journalist. And I, ironically, again, something I wasn't looking for, it just kind of fell in my lap. I got my first reporting job as a fashion reporter or then uh, a publication called Daily News Record, which is also stood for DNR, which was a trade publication, the men's fashion trade Bible that would coincide with sister publication, Women's Wear Daily or WWD. Right. And I went from being, you know, a fashion enthusiast to an expert overnight. Right. This is where Destiny then kind of drove me in. And I don't know if it was because of my surname. Within a few weeks, after getting the gig, now we're talking mid nineties, nineteen ninety six. In fact, a very yeah. pinnacle year hip hop. Yeah, I start getting phone calls from brands like Maurice Malone, Mecca USA, um, Shabazz Brothers, Urban Wear, mm -hmm. and they're telling me, "Oh, no one from this publication ever comes to see my line." Right. And I'm like, "Well, I can't speak for my predecessor. I can't, you know, really speak for that, but." I'm familiar with your line. Right. And that's because I was part of the hip hop generation. So this was not something far removed from me. But because I was working in corporate, understanding that that was not the typical coverage, I was hesitant. I literally remember going to my editor and hitting him with like a proposal, a straight up like more than a two minute elevator pitch as to why I needed to write a story about how hip hop fashion was going mainstream. Mm. And honestly, it wasn't a hard sell. In fact, he was like, what did I have you for? You know, I, I trust your judgment. Right. If you think this is a story, run with it. And that was 1996. And, you know, here we are today. And that breath of work that I had morphed into my first book in 2012, Freestyling How Hip Hop Changed the Fashion Industry. Yes. It made my journalistic career. My journalistic career grew parallel to the market I coveraged. Right. So I'm completely indebted to those brands who entrusted their stories and then in turn gave me the opportunity to have a voice, a, right. a unique and distinct voice in the marketplace that at that time, although we had wonderful music magazines, we're talking 1996, you know, this is like the height 
a right. vibe and the source, right. and we double excel and, right. and there was stress magazine and it was a wonderful time in print media when yeah. print mattered, where everyone ran to the newsstand or had a subscription and we had to see who was going to be on the cover and how many mics. mics yeah, yeah, was you know, it was just a whole different experience. You know, I have to, I'm talking history to my kids when I talk to them about these stories. because right. they're What? Huh? What are you talking about? Right. They're internet babies. You know, they're, they're, it's a whole different experience, hip hop for them than our connection. Right. I woke up every day after school at 3.30. I'm turning on my TV with the 13 UF, uh, UHF channels yep. to watch Ralph they, McDaniels yep. after school on the one TV set that we had in my house. And that was my access to hip hop. Yes. I could actually touch, feel, you know, these artists because I'm a girl. My mother was keeping me inside the house. And so I didn't have the same access to hip hop where she would let me roam the streets, go to parties. Like I was locked in. Right. I could have that so much later. College was my, you know, awakening period, my discovery period. You're blooming. Full force <laughs> into that. Right. Um, so I was very fortunate. And so that being said, it was a wonderful time to be there, to see it, to understand it. Yeah. And I don't even think at the time, looking back, I'm in my 20s at that point, that I really understood the power of my pen. But mm. with each stroke, with each keyboard stroke that I placed the story in, my audience were the decision makers, the retailers, the manufacturers. So what I was saying had even more weight because yeah. of who was listening and reading. It wasn't the same with consumer publications that, quite frankly, were more um, interested in showing the fashion more in their fashion pages as editorial spreads right. and in gaining the advertising, advertising. that their books gained, obviously, and would grow into. But the stories, and I understood the hip hop magazines, their intent was to be historical records that really focused on the music. The fashion was kind of this offshoot that came in almost like, you know, a ratings type of TV show. Like, <laughs> we'll throw in a fashion story every once in a while. Right. There was no one really dedicated to that. Yeah. And I would question, why not? So there really weren't people kind of doing that kind of work. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I went for it. And right. it worked out great. Yeah. To the point that anytime a music persona had a clothing line, I would get the school. Right. So I'm always proud to say I broke the story that Puffy got into the clothing business before the New York Times. There you you know, or because of those relationships that sure. I built over the years, if J-Lo broke into the clothing business, then I got the interview, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it wasn't that you were at the right place at the right time, but you also did it right. Like you did it well. You were respected by both sides of that puzzle you know you well you know you know it's funny because i could say you know to some degree i was somewhat like a ventriloquist right depending and this is where code switching i was about to say the early you you gotta know you know it's time place and manner right and you gotta know how to play your position for me you know I, i was using that lens of journalistic objectivity and that was being fueled to some degree by my personal passion but it wasn't solely being driven by my personal passion. Like mm-hmm. I did not want my personal passion to interfere with what the real story was. And the real story was that there was something happening that mainstream fashion wasn't really paying attention to. Right. And I happen to get it because I'm an insider. Right. I'm right. not this outsider, not really understanding what it is. What That's is it with the white, black, Asian, Latino kids all getting together right. and music and what are they wearing? This was my generation. That's so I was literally telling my own stories right. in one in one way or another, my own way. 
And so people automatically felt comfortable because I was really honest. I was like, listen, I'm not a fashion person by training, but I am a trained journalist and I know a story. So what's your story? And so little by little, I would get those stories and the momentum would build up. And again, I would track them in Vegas and I would go to the fashion shows. And um, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time to see young people, young people of color succeed, making money. The time, you know, the economy was good. So everybody was having a great time. (laughs) It was the the best time. I will tell you, the 90s by far were, you know, some of the greatest times for, you know, innovation and media in terms of the TV shows that we started seeing, you know, we had In Living Color, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, on one end, and we had, you know, television sitcoms like uh, The Cosby Show and Different World. I mean, it was just a lot of stuff going on. The the print magazines and then the... the, MTV all of a sudden playing hip-hop. Now we got a lot of placement. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, for those of us who are young, thriving, pushing... You know, the hustle was real in the 90s and we were making it and doing it. And it was great to watch my fellow young people doing it in their lane and their spaces. Yeah. And be able to tell those stories at one point. So at numbers, at one point, what was the value of so-called urban fashion? Uh, You know, how much of an impact did it make on the industry once the industry got wise and caught up? And helped, you know, elevate. Well, I'll give you an idea of, you know, some of the the, the trajectory in terms of the numbers. You remember Cross Colors, right? Which, by the way, has returned. Um, Cross Colors in its heyday made $100 million. At that particular point, and we're talking, uh, what is that? 80, late 80s, early 90s. In four years, it made $100 million. Mm. That was unheard of at that time. The the category of fashion where these brands were placed because fashion is all categorized with different labels was called young men's because this was really a young men's driven uh, fashion trend. Right. That was the first time we saw a brand out the box go from zero to 100 million. Mm. They went not only from local distribution and regional distribution, but department store distribution. There's a long-winded story as to what happened, you know, but nonetheless, that was the, you know, what well, we had already had brands that were catering to urban youth and urban centers, you know, you had your major damage, your get use, but this was a little different because now what had happened was a transition from consumer brands trying to market to the urban consumer to the faces of the brands representing the consumers that they were representing, right? Mm. So that was the big shift. Mm. So hence where FUBU, for us, by us, right, Mm -hmm. takes now what Cross Colors did and amplifies it. Cross uh, FUBU at its peak, which would have been around 1998, was a $350 million business, Mm. right? When I stopped reporting on fashion full time in 2002, with all the licensees and global, the NPD group, which is a Port Washington based uh, research fashion research uh, firm, had pegged urban at being a $58 billion industry. And yet mainstream fashion looked at it as a fad. Right. So. Although I had made inroads in coverage and by then you're starting to get Forbes and all these other people kind of covering it to give it more legitimacy, you know, the market had exploded. But then what happens? The internet, 
the, the economy tanks. And also there's a shift in how consumers shop and buy. Right. So where my generation, you know, it was about finding the hard to find items and going to specific spots. Right. And if you were from different parts of the barrel, you knew which part of the barrel you would go to. And right. you kind of kept certain secrets. I mean, some of them were kind of known right. um, to the point where I mentioned in my book. Everyone that I talked to, the spot that they would go to in the Bronx, they couldn't name the real name of the store, but they all nicknamed the store Jumans. They all knew exactly the corner. They knew what train station to go to, but they couldn't remember the real name of the store. But they all, but if you were in the know, you knew exactly where that store was, right? If you wanted to, you know, get custom apparel, then you might have gone to Harlem and and went to Dapper Dan's spot, right? Right. And got his stuff there. Uh, So it was just a really interesting time. And, And by the time the 90s happened, you had a bunch of young people, not all fashion trained, who realized, you know what? There's a need, a desire, because of course, you know, we're, we're taking our cues from the hustlers and, and the ballers and right. looking at, you know, designer labels in the 90s was really big and luxury, but those brands weren't catered to the urban customer, right? In terms of fit, in terms of our hip hop personas, they had not become true celebrities yet or global. So therefore, um, they're not going to Rodale Drive and opening the door saying, here, let me give you clothes so you can wear for your video shoot, right? We're talking about the early days, pre-wardrobe stylists, who are really the people who need to get a lot of, you know, support, hands down, applaud, who are really the image makers behind many of the celebrities, right? right? We're talking pre-celebrity, pre-huge music budgets, where, quite frankly, the rapper was just shopping and they're buying their own clothes, putting it on and throwing it on for the music video. Right. right. And of course, they want to dress like the stars they emulate for them. The stars, right. were the hustlers and the ballers of that time. Where right. did they shop? They shopped at dance. Well, Eric B. and Rakim, then what did they wear? Dapper did. Right. Yeah, so that's yeah, kind yeah. Of how that wore. They took what was being worn in the street and now. You know, the traditional musician, costume, theatrical, fantasy experiences, they were there, but we morphed into then this transition of streetwear becoming the uniform of choice in front of the media. And hence now the world is starting to see how, Mm -hmm. you know, young urban youth dress and they discover (laughs) the look and it becomes mainstream, global, and now it's as common as apple pie. Yes, but that was kind of the early roots of hip hop fashion. That's uh, uh, your knowledge of the time is is in depth, and it brings back a lot of memories. To everyone, you know, we know, we know how it was. To shop. I'm a Long Island boy. I right, had to go right. out to the Coliseum and yes. see the Queens for that bus. And you would go see Shirt King Fame. Hundred percent. To get your sweatshirt done or your T-shirt with the cartoon and the outfits, of course. Every region had its own place where they had their own corner legends. Yeah, yeah. And and you talk about talk about legends. Recently, those who uh, would be like, I know her from somewhere because she's a TV star now, y'all. She's a TV. I know her for so many. And now she's a TV star. Now you're on the Netflix uh, documentary. Uh, oh, you talking about me? I I'm talking about you. The Hilton? Are you? Ta- well, you. On the, <laughs> that's where I'm going with it all. I've always had to figure out being taken seriously. And I'll never forget the best advice I got from a fashion executive who told me, Elena, for you to succeed in this business, 
you have to keep in mind three things. First, a man wants to see if he can fuck you. Then he wants to see if he can fuck you over. And lastly, he wants to see if he can get you out the picture. If you can keep these three things in mind, then you can go a long way. Uh, in reality, I'm just a little ordinary person who's a nugget in this whole storyline. There are so many stories to tell. That's why I, I wanted to say. Tell you I just want to say. Oh, go ahead. Exactly you're seeing the net. If, if, if you didn't know and you haven't watched it, you definitely should. Uh, July 22nd, Netflix broke the, the remix Hip Hop Times Fashion, a wonderful documentary co-directed by Farah X and Lisa Cortez, sharing the stories, the intimate stories of four unique designers. Uh, you know, the star being Misa Hilton, yep. who everyone knows as being, you know, a well-known custom celebrity stylist, you know, helping make the looks, the iconic looks of Little Kim and Mary J. Blige and so on and so forth that are still replicated and duplicated to this day. 100%. Also, another wonderful pioneer, April Walker of Walker Who Air fame, one of the few women, not only in that time period of the 90s, but still standing with her apparel. And then we have Dapper Dan, the Harlem legend that everyone looked up to as well. And then most recently, Pyra Moss, Kirby, you know, sharing his current story and his struggle and, you know, receiving acceptance and fashion and doing it his way. Yes. Yeah. Well, the hip hop way. You just push. Mm -hmm. I had Ernie Panicoli on the show uh, last yes, week. Yes. And, I mean, there's so many. I mean, and he's like, look, get out. He's like, you want to do it, you do it your way? Fast. We can go on and on. Joe Conzo. I mean, there's so get many. Get out the way and do it. Planes, yeah. Right. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wonderful get to say that we all have this love and affinity and what brings us all together is the love, not just of the music, but the culture as well. And we, we range in ages, yep. you know, we're from different, gen you know, demographics. Yeah. We are of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, you know, yeah. gender, religion. And what unifies us is this one thing called hip hop. hundred percent. I don't know. I, I don't know of anything that unifies people any better. Yep. Uh, in respect to the Netflix, to uh, the remix show, how important, we know the answer, but, you know, for those who, who don't understand exactly how uh, vital this is and how uh, how good it makes us feel, just to be honest, I, I forget big words, how good it makes us feel to see the culture documented properly, respectfully, professionally, with the voices, with those individuals that you mentioned prominently in the mix to well, tell their stories. How important is that? Point that there are enough years that have time that have passed yeah. that people now can kind of step back, reflect and really analyze, right? What took place? How did it happen? Where, how did we get here? Right. And so, um, you know, prior to my book, you had Nelson George and a number of other people who had chapters in their books talking about the fashion experience. Right. My book drops in 2012. It gives a great overview of the entire industry and how it was created. We start seeing films about urban fashion. Sasha created uh, the dress, the Fresh Dress film that right. aired on CNN in 2015. That's right. We have a number of documentaries on sneakers and sneakerheads. So we're starting to see a body of work out there sh really sharing different nuggets because there's plenty of room out there for more documentaries to tell more stories. So I would say from a fashion perspective, Sasha kind of opens up a generic film on 
what this is, how it happened, and give you a good overview. Yeah. What the what Cortez and Farah X do is kind of take that same story and now really make it much more centrally focused around four people, right? And even more so, even though there's a stories of two men and two women, the emphasis is more on the women because quite frankly, the industry has always been male dominated. And so the woman's story is always kind of taken a backseat and almost completely silent. Mm. And so what the what they do is utilize kind of Mises tale and April and weave in these others at the same time right. and then getting a wide range of experts both in music and media in fashion and culture right. to help tell that story and that right. narrative and to basically defend and put that stamp of approval why these people's stories need to be told That's so right. i think it's critical that every type of documentary that comes out related to the culture should be watched, should be supported, because it's just one other piece of the story that gets to be told. And there are many, many chapters left to be read. Yes, indeed. Uh, for those who are just checking us out, we are talking with uh, Elena Romero, who was uh, featured as a, uh, a talking head is kind of a disparaging term, but an expert <laughs> opinion uh, uh, on in the uh, Netflix film, uh, The Remix Hip Hop Fashion. Uh, it is a great. It, it's well done, and I was really happy to see it. I'm always happy to see when these uh, when these things happen, and they're not, you know, they're not low budget. <laughs> they're done they're done pretty pretty well. So shouts to them for that, yeah. uh, Elena. How do you uh, currently a little you know, fast forwarding a little bit sure. to sort of your current situation and some things you have in the works? Uh, doing your part to kind of continue that, making sure that the hip hop narrative as a whole. The multi multi aspects, the multifaceted aspects of the culture are all represented. Fashion being a very important one that stands alone and should not always just be relegated to a chapter in a book. Nothing wrong with it, but that right. it deserves so much more. You're doing it in your positions uh, that have one foot in, again, to this day, one foot in the culture, one foot in academia. W what are you working on that people need to know about and how you're helping to contribute to uh, that whole idea? Well, while I made hip hop, you know, part of kind of my social responsibility and my journalistic career, yep. that also morphs into my academic or scholarly work, right? So um, I am currently working on a phenomenal project, which will incorporate a number of uh, elements, yep. one of which is for uh, 2023, FIT, the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology, will host Fresh, Fly, and Fabulous, 50 Years of Hip-Hop Style. And that project will be co-curated by myself and my colleague, Elizabeth Way, who works for the museum full-time. Uh, she's African-American, I'm Puerto Rican, two women giving our perspective on 50 Years of Hip-Hop Style. In addition to that, we are creating a permanent collection at the museum, at the Fashion Institute of Technology, that will archive our artifacts specifically around fashion. And mm. that collection will flow into that exhibition that we'll be doing. Mm. In addition to our hope, um, and that's currently in the works, so I don't have all those details to share at the moment, there will also be an accompanying book that will go along and come out close or near before the yeah. exhibition. So continuing to, again, research, document, and showcase you know, I think for many, they still think hip hop fashion is just big logos and baggy jeans. And when you see a presentation that God willing will have about a hundred garments 
It'll have about 12 vignettes that will have different themes. People are going to have their mind blown away because they don't really understand what hip hop fashion is or right. that influence is. And here is going to be laid out for them in, in such an easy, digestible way that anyone, hip hop head or not, is going to come out completely impressed, yeah. overwhelmed and say, you know what? This is really legit. Like, I think until this happens, it's still kind of questionable. Is it a trend? Is it a fad? Right. Is it a really a right. big thing? And it's something that those of us who have lived and breathed this can be proud and bring our kids, our grandkids, our family members, reminisce about that outfit and these shoes and that earring, you know, and for those yeah. who are unfamiliar and tourists to come and appreciate something that has strong New York roots. Absolutely. And I feel that there's no better place to do that than at FIT, one of the big staples of, you know, academic institutions. You know, yeah. And shouts out to them for doing it. I mean, you know, again, we talk about the intersections and having to deal with institutions, long-standing institutions that are sometimes resistant to the hip-hop aesthetic or the, you know, hip-hop ideas that we bring to the table. We've They're open had, to it. We've had um, different talks related to that over the years. I've done my book talks at the university, but in, as well, the museum does couture talks where they've invited Dapper Dan. I remember interviewing and having on the costume de designer of the get down. And we talked about hip hop and fashion and television and how that yeah. transcended. So we do, I talked, I had a talk with Monica Miller from Columbia university and we talked about the color pink in, in hip hop and in music. So trust me, there is, right. there has been talk. Um, but I think not to the level that, or the magnitude that an exhibit like this can draw people from all, you know, areas, yeah. all generations to really understand and appreciate and finally give the proper due to an industry that continues to grow and continues to dominate, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Worldwide. I, I always appreciate the the point of this show is actually I, I say this I don't want any hip hop heads listening to this show of course I do but I, what I really want is people outside of hip hop sure. who say oh you're talking about hip hop and education what's that about and they scoff and they don't and then they listen and then we talk to hip hop educators who translate it as you said before you got to translate you got to oh yeah wherever I can I throw you know and it's it's intentional and not intentional wherever right. I can I try to throw in a story that my students can relate to so yeah. thankfully the '90s are back. That means my work is relevant, right? Because that's goes back around. That's right. Back around. And so, you know, a great example. I've got a 14-year-old. I had to school her when I bought her some Reebok 5411s, right? What are Reeboks 5411s? Trust right. me when I tell you. Right. You wear these. You tell them the story behind the shoe. You're going to be the it person in school. Right. These are parts of, you know, our childhood memories, nostalgia that are all coming back again. Yeah, and yeah. the new generations are rediscovering it and remixing it their own way, the way they know how. But we always, as being the older folks or the OGs, we have to always tell them, know your history, pay attention to the originators. Yeah. And so there are plenty of stories to share and I'm, you know, excited to just be one of the many people to contribute to that body of work. You do it fantastically. Uh, I, I'm so happy that you're out there doing it. I'm so happy that you get the opportunity to do it. I'm so happy the institutions are, are you know, making sure that they participate. We need oh, them. They need us. When I was in college, you know, shout out to Trisha Rose. The yeah. first book 
that I read as a college student that I was able to grab my hands on was her Black Noise book. Black and noise. I was like, oh my God, they're writing about this? Mm. Like my culture, my stories, that yeah. was the first time I saw, oh, wait a minute, it can be done. And now there are tons of hip hop scholars. You yeah. know, it's it's a it's a new new and not so new area, but academia has no choice right. but to have to acknowledge it. It is a multi-billion dollar industry, yeah. right? That has taken over American culture, right? It's not American culture I, is no longer I make, about that. Of course, right. phones are ringing. American culture isn't just baseball and apple pie. I've made hip-hop the I was about to say I've, I've made the argument that hip hop yeah. is Americana. The term Americana needs to be updated. That's right. That's the argument. But Uh, there's a reason why not, right? Of course. Who who created it, right? And that becomes then a much more complicated conversation of the American struggles between race, class, gender. But that's that's, enough. That's enough. It's a whole other talk. (laughs) But to be, you know, to be clear the work you do, the work that you're involved in, the work that we're all doing, the, yeah. you know, uh, is we all how have we to play a part, you gotta know, play the part. we gotta keep complain all we want, right. but what role you choose to take, what lane you choose to play. Yes. As long as you do it with authenticity, with integrity, then this is the legacy that we leave yep. our children, our grandchildren and for generations for years to come. I got well said. I got two questions for you before uh, I let you go. Okay. If you would indulge me. Uh, number one, the state of, you know, I have, we love having these conversations on the music tip, the state <laughs> of hip hop music today. And there's all kinds of debates and arguments and, you know, uh, barbershop talk. Uh, the state of urban fashion, quote unquote, uh, hip hop fashion today. We've had some of the legacy brands you've talked about, sure. you know, the, the Rockefellers, the Fat Farms sold off and kind of become a little bit uh, diffused as you know from the actual sort of roots of where whence they came. Um, but you have a lot of young upstarts, and you have a lot of small, and again, there's so many that sometimes it's very, very uh, f- uh, faction, very regional, very you don't even know about it on the other side of town because this is a little you know bubble that's happening overall from a uh, I guess a giant corporate landscape, but also on the grassroots level. How do you look at uh, hip hop fashion today in 2020? Well, I think it's important to know that the industry continues to try to redefine and figure out what is the term of preference or choice right. when trying to label this stuff. Right? I gave the quote but, unquote, so I'm ra- so, I'm cognizant. So I'm going to give you a couple <laughs> of the labels and how they're morphed and kind of the label that's being used now and how now is different than then. So I've got to give a little bit of history here. Break right? it down. So as I mentioned earlier, in the fashion industry, we have to categorize apparel and goods so we can classify where to place them at retail from a department store perspective. Okay. So... The youth fashion, what was being called young men's, in the 80s was being driven primarily by the West Coast, your California, your Seattle's of the world. We're talking beach surfwear. Uh, right. I was going to say surf and culture. And hip-hop happened, and it exploded and became more mainstream. The pendulum of youth fashion switched from West Coast to East Coast. Okay. The garmentos, as we call them, didn't know quite what to call this. 
So there was different terms at different time periods, whether it was black fashion, it was urban, it was ethnic. Urban ended up becoming the more palatable term in the 90s up until the mid to late 2000s, in part because the music was also called urban, urban. music. So there was that correlation. Right. Over time, as the market grew and it started having weight in terms of the volume sales, right. many of the originators and the people working in the industry, and I'm talking specifically the people of color, right. felt that the term pigeonholed them, stigmatized them, that equated to the same connotation as the N-word. Right. But they were trying to break out it. They couldn't understand what makes us different than the mainstream or the luxury designers. We're right. making clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Over time, that label has kind of been diffused. And it has morphed into a much broader category term that now is called streetwear. Streetwear is a huge umbrella term right. that is basically a smorgasbord of every type of youth trend possible. <laughs> so that way, it's not directly linked as before to a people. As of now, that's the label or the la or the name that sticks. Sticks. Right. I don't know if it's going to continue. So, so, so this would be like surf. This would be like skater. It'd be hip hop, kind of all under that umbrella. I will tell you that the difference is, although those are tied to particular cultures. Yeah. Hip hop is tied to a particular culture, 100%. but it's also tied to people. Right. And with that then becomes America's perception of race and the and then now I get in my whole scholarly talk of, you know, our gaze towards whiteness and right. what's right and wrong. It gets complicated. Yeah. So fashion, although it's geared towards everybody, the people in the industry, whether they said it out loud or not, felt that type of fashion was really geared towards a particular demographic that they weren't always 100% embracing, though they were taking those dollars. Right, 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 right. So a lot of brands played in the gray area, right? So how close to authentic are you? And to some degree, you know, there's a little bit of theatrics and fantasy with authenticity. Right. as to which brands the consumers chose to wear. And in the 90s, the brands they chose to wear were both, quote unquote, mainstream designers inspired by urban or hip hop music, as well as the designers that originated from the culture who were making clothes specifically to the audience they were serving. Right. The reality is, that my friends and folks in the industry, and this is an argument that I would have with them constantly, is that I would tell them, I don't care what label you choose to call yourselves. Pick one you're happy with, hmm. but own it and claim it. Okay. Because if you're waiting for the industry to deem you reputable, stamp of approval, you're going to wait for a really, really long time. Right. You know, and, you know, we could get into arguments about who are you waiting to accept you 
you know, you're going to wait for someone to run away and say they owned or they, you know, founded this and then go, no, 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 this is ours. You appropriated it. No, right. you got to take it, own it and claim it. I think now we're in a space where we've had so much injustice that people are finally kind of standing their own two grounds and whatever might have clouded the judgment before of should we, shouldn't we, we're, we're finally in a place where guess what? This market is here. This music is here. It's not a fad. It is major. It's made careers. It's made people. It's had people start here. It's almost like the BMCC um, slogan, start here and start, go anywhere. Right. You know, people have started in hip hop and they've gone on into creating multi brands 100%. and move into, you know, theater, the, you know, move into acting, film, television, but yeah. the roots, the, there's something about those of us who come from that generation. And it's about possibly not having or lacking, right? And having to see our parents struggle. And the hustle that comes from the hip hop generation, I haven't seen in no other. We can make something out of lint and make it spectacular. Forget, you know, make it out of, you know, 15 cents. And that, is something that the world wants to replicate. Yeah. And and so fashion becomes our brand signifiers as to who we are. So what's happening is what urban was to us in the 90s is no longer. That I can accept. But also the mechanisms that built it are very different mechanisms today. What I do see happening, fashion is cyclical. And it will get discovered and rediscovered by a new generation. And so how my children wear the clothes may be very different. What's unique with hip hop, unlike other generations, traditionally teenagers never want to look like their parents. The moment (laughs) parents dress like their, their kids, it's over. Hip hop is one of those areas where, you know, we kind of share, we might rock it differently, but we share similar brands with our children and our offspring. That's brilliant. Which, again, has not been seen by the traditional American consumer. Hence, again, give props to hip-hop. So what I see happening is a rebirth, a rediscovery that may include, right, pulling from nostalgic brands, but also reinfusing that same hustle and drive and storyline and narrative into the new generation who will be able to take what was done by a group of young people who, quite frankly, were figuring it out. The school of hard knocks as they went along, guerrilla marketing was their best friend. This was really, you know, a dollar and a dream. And they can now take, if they follow the blueprint, if they learn the history and the story, and figure out the challenges and the pitfalls, they could take what we couldn't do and take it to that next level. So I think Mm. it is at a critical point of rebirth. And which is why for me, being able to see hip hop about to turn 50 and on those heels, examine the fashion component and show it in its full gamut and breadth is essential to being able to get that story, get that story right, for that next generation that wants to break into the fashion industry and we need to push them forward. So for me, that's my responsibility to ensure that we respect 
the original creators and yeah. those stories, but give the young generation the ammunition to be able to build and take it further than we could have because our dreams were somewhat limited. You know, many of those apparel designers, I can't tell you if they were doing it to be in the business 20 years. You know, they got as far as they did and yeah. they were in some cases shocked that they got as far as they did. Right, and to right. some degree, some of them chose to cash out because it was like, you know what? I'm not pressing my luck. I've gotten this far. I've made it. And, you know, to some degree, they've all made it, right? Everyone had a different standard of making it. That's understandable. Some, it was keeping their brand around. Like Carl Kanai is still around. Right. Carl Kanai has been around for multiple generations and decades. And people will go, oh, well, you know, he may or may not have the same, you know, breath, but he is our Alf Lauren in our community, right? right? And and the people that came from Cross Colors, you know, you got June Ambrose, Tony Shellman, you got tons of people who eventually morphed into um, different genres within the fashion community. And then now we're at a point where we also have to mentor that next generation. Right. We figured it out all on our own, whether right. it was being the hip hop journalist, whether it was being in fashion, being in music, we figured it out without the playbook. Yeah. The young kids, we got books, we got documentaries. It should be <laughs> a piece of cake for them because we right. figured it out from nothing. Right. But we've got to leave them a blueprint because otherwise yeah. we're doing a service and thinking that we're going to keep this going. And to some degree, here's that famous, we're building generational wealth, right? right? This is the, you know, this is part of the end goal of breaking the generational curses and trying to move us from a, you know, from a class perspective and the ability to make moves, to shake the industry up. So right. I see it as a wonderful opportunity of rebirth, of excitement, inspiration. And I'm hoping that I can see that next wave you know, do better than that. Uh, you know, the folks did in the 80s and 90s with what we left them again as that blueprint. Yeah. Yeah. We, there's a lot of talk today about, you know, ownership and all that. And that was a hard thing to, to get through the music side of things because sure. the music business was such a machine. Although now you see so much independence, uh, you know, success through independence. Well, look, we had but to the learn. fashion industry we, did we that. Learned, you know, unfortunately, the younger folks who signed contracts without attorneys or not understanding right. the business side of it. They got jerked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Eventually, those who broke into it later and, you know, learned again, school of hard knocks, bumps and bruises, we learned about owning publishing. Right. The same thing happens with fashion. You know what? A lot of people, they got in where they could. Right. So they might have been owners. They might have not. Right. Quite frankly, to me, it didn't matter. Right. They were still originators and creators, and they were able to convince people who had the money to invest in them. Did they get used? Did they really do it for the culture, meaning the, the people who backed them? Yeah. I can't say they all did. Right. But ultimately, we created a multi-billion dollar industry, and we used other people's money to do it, which <laughs> is the way of capitalism way and the way to do it. <laughs> what I what I like about this is when we talk about educating the, the the new movement, the new you know young young folk. We're not trying to tell y'all how to do it. Right. We're trying to tell you how not to do it. Right. <laughs> like don't make the mistakes. Here's and here's the gems that we hit. You have to do what is comfortable for you. Yeah. What falls under your moral compass. Yes. Under your definition of integrity. True but some people they'll say, oh that person sold out. Well, you know you're using your moral compass and less, and so. That may be true, yep. but from your perspective. So you've got to figure out what is it, what is your end goal? 
Yeah. And, you know, for now, those of us who've been in it long enough, our end goal is to make sure that our history does not get erased yeah. because, quite frankly, not that many people know the story. Indeed. Hence why the documentaries, the books and any kind of media exposure possible to keep that story alive. Well, let me tell you, in my humble opinion, uh, the story is in good hands when Elena Romero is involved. So thank you so much for all of your work, uh, for everything that you've uh, done up to this point and continue to do to make sure the narratives are told with authenticity and with love. And we thank you for that. Uh, where can people find you online to follow all of your great wisdom and, and gems that I'm sure you drop on a regular basis? Where are you at? Where can people find you? You can find me on my website at elena-romero.com. On Instagram, I'm Prof E. Romero. On Twitter, I'm free underscore styling. And they can find me on Facebook as well. So I'm in all kind of platforms. You Google me. I'm also at FIT. I can be found. <laughs> That's it. That's what's up. Uh, when this new uh, endeavor launches or you know grows to some point, I'd love to have you back. Uh, I'd love to be by then. I'll be able to actually see you in person again with that. Yes, kinda... we'll be able to hug instead of just virtual <laughs> air hugs. Just, you know. So the timing might be good. I think we might be kind of all right by 2023. I hope uh, so. I but hope I know so. it's a lot of work. It's not an overnight thing. I really respect you for everything you've done, but also everything you're continuing to do. It's a pleasure and, a, and an honor and a privilege to talk to you. And I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I hope to see you soon. Thank you as well. All right. Boom. There you have it. Back on the air live. Elena Romero, Fashion Institute of Technology, author of Freestyle and How Hip Hop Changed the Fashion Industry. And, of course, uh, makes an appearance in the Netflix documentary, uh, The Remix, Hip Hop and Fashion. Hip Hop X Fashion. I don't know if it's and fashion. Man, I mean, expert on this topic. Uh, really, just a fascinating. You know, I saw the documentary, so much backstory. And it's so important, again, as I said in the beginning of this episode, that hip hop gets its narratives uh, told in the proper way. Uh, it's been, uh, I do a talk uh, where, where I, I can break down to you how mainstream media has positioned hip-hop in the eyes of the masses, right? And the masses are mainly people outside of the culture. Uh, so it's so important that people inside the culture who have access to the resources, you know, uh, can bring these stories to light. Elena does a great job of it, uh, continues to do, and as you can uh, hear from the interview, uh, is going to continue uh, moving that uh, forward. So respect to her, respect to you, and thank you once again for checking out Hip Hop Can Save America with Manny Faces, the live podcast edition for the month of September only because Jesus Lord, do I need a break. Uh, every day, Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's kind of cool. I like that y'all come back because it's like, remember we used to have to like sit, we have to go to TV at a certain time when the TV show was on, on a certain, so this is like that. And I appreciate that um, y'all actually doing it. I appreciate y'all. Uh, once again, though, if you do miss them, you can find them all wherever you're watching me. And if uh, you subscribe to the podcast, you get them all there, plus a couple of extra bonus episodes, uh, specifically for the podcast feed that weren't done via video. Uh, just the normal uh, Hip Hop Can Save America interview. Uh, the best thing you can do for me is to share this. As we're wrapping up, you can share it to your feed and just say, oh, my God, Manny is awesome. Or he's so I hate Manny, but the people he have on is awesome. It's fine. For Elena, you saw I had to wear my nice shirt, my fashionable shirt because it was fashion. Today, I'm wearing my fashionable hat. So I'm trying to do my part. Y'all. I'm trying to, you know, uh, make it so that this is a, a nice viewing experience for the both of us. But you can definitely share this episode. Let people know what we're doing over here. If you'd like and if you can support this work, there's a Patreon page, patreon.com slash 
many faces. Uh, a lot of this is equipment and subscriptions and the multi-streaming costs and the assistance costs. Shouts to uh, OG associate producer Summer, who helps with the main podcast. Shouts to new G associate producer Cindy who's been helping with this one. We'll be back tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern, and for the rest of the month, uh, God willing, every Monday through Thursday, great intersections of hip-hop in all kinds of areas, education, health and wellness, science and technology, politics and social justice. Uh, tomorrow I have uh, some friends on that do all of that and more. Uh, just a, an amazing uh, uh, organization. And uh, I love how you got to tune in to the day of to find out who I'm talking to because it's like exciting. It is for me. I hope it's exciting for y'all. Thanks to everyone who's checked in. Uh, there's a billion of you today. I really appreciate this, uh, this time together, and I appreciate Elena. Once again, elena-romero.com to find out anything that she's doing, and she's always doing great things. My name is Manny Faces, mannyfaces.com. If you need to know a little bit more about me, need to get in touch, uh, do all the things. Of course, the Hip Hop Advocate newsletter, you'll see in the links over here. Uh, we put that out every couple of weeks. It's a compilation of articles uh, and sources uh, that talk about hip hop in innovative and inspiring and interesting ways like this. So if you like this, you'll like that. It's a free newsletter. Sign up for that. And yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, I appreciate y'all. And we will turn this into a podcast a little bit later today. It'll be up on the feed soon. Once again, share this and patreon.com slash Manny Faces. Really just a cup of coffee a month. You know what I mean? Like it really does help, but I understand no obligation. Uh, pay it forward by sharing it. And that's just as, if not uh, more valuable to me. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. I'll talk to y'all soon. Uh, my head is scrambling. Uh, thanks, Elena. Thanks to y'all. I will catch y'all tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, love and light. Peace and love. We're out. Once again, thanks for listening to another episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's most important hip hop podcast. My name is Manny Faces. You can find out more about the show at hiphopcansaveamerica.com. You can watch the show now as a live stream on YouTube, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Check back for all the replays as well. The interviews from the live stream will be brought here onto the audio feed, so you always get the best of the live stream. You can also check out our Substack newsletter. It's free at mannyfaces.substack.com, filled with stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and in general, hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. <laughs> Eternal shouts to our consulting producer, Summer McCoy. Be sure to check out her dope initiatives, Hip Hop Hacks, and the Mixtape Museum. We'll be back soon with another dope episode, but check us out on the live stream as well. Mondays, 9 p.m. Eastern, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Until next time, it's Manny Faces wishing peace and love to you and yours.